Hello, my name is Daniel Nenny, founder of SemiWiki, the open forum for semiconductor professionals. Welcome to the Semiconductor Insiders podcast series. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please post it on semiwiki.com and we'll get right to it. My guest today is Nigel Drago, the CTO and co-founder of Quadric. Nigel brings extensive experience in software and hardware design to his role at Quadric. Nigel is an expert in computer architecture, compiler technology, and software frameworks. Welcome to the podcast, Nigel. Well, thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's nice to meet you. Um, can you tell us first how you came to the semiconductor industry? Maybe you can share a little bit about your journey. Yeah, um, I guess it starts probably classically uh, for most people, but for me, it was in the in university. Um, was very interested in both the software and hardware side of things. And um, the summer of my first, after my first year in college, had the opportunity to join a uh, physics lab doing electronic design for them. And um, what they were doing was actually quite interesting. They were building electronics for the Large Hadron Collider in uh, Switzerland, uh, better known as the collider that discovered the Higgs boson. Uh, so I can say I had some small, very small part in that. And uh, that really piqued my interest doing uh, everything from uh, PCB layout to assembly coding all the way up uh, to higher level coding um, and, and just really interesting and just kept my interest throughout college and just went from there. Where did you go from college? You you finished up with a PhD at MIT? And that's right. Yeah. Um, went to do my master's at MIT right after finishing university. Um, decided not to do a PhD at that point and instead went and worked for a couple of years at Intel. Uh, very quickly realized that I probably wanted to go back and do my PhD. So I did that, um, spent four years doing that and came back out um, and spent a few years at a company called PDF Solutions down in San Jose, uh, very focused on manufacturing and uh, yield ramp and so on. And then very uh, after about three years, got got my uh, start into the startup space. Right. That's a classic Silicon Valley story. Right? So what brought you to co-founding Quadric? Good question. So back in 2013, um, three co-founders uh, of Quadric, we also started um, a company called 21.co, a Bitcoin mining company. Um, and we did that for about three years while it was still financially lucrative to do Bitcoin mining in the U.S., uh, eventually, that was we pivoted that company to a pure software play, and it was eventually acquired by Coinbase. And uh, the startup bug at that point was just in us, so we we took some time out after that and uh, kind of decided what we wanted to do next. Started playing with the robot and got very interested in robotics and understanding what are the challenges, how do you build an economically viable, scalable robot. But we very quickly realized that the challenge there was very compute-based. The algorithms, uh, very difficult to process on a, just a normal CPU. You don't have the time, uh, specifically latency. And you're often bandwidth or connectivity constrained as well as power constrained. And so you aren't really going to be putting large GPUs or, or anything like that, which are extremely power um, consuming, into something that you want to uh, build as an economically viable and scalable robot. So we decided instead to go after the compute 
platform that could power these kinds of applications. And um, that's that's what we ended up doing for uh, as as Quadric. Great. So from what I understand, Quadric is building and licensing a new processor architecture that you call the Chimera GP NPU. Um, but rather than using uh, RISC-V or some other standard uh, instruction set, you develop a completely new one. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, good question. People often ask us why why not go with something else, and really it just harks back to that founding story when we were building the robot and specifically going after the algorithms and figuring out how we wanted to structure the pipeline for vision. There was a clear realization that, um, uh, well, multiple things. First, that while AI is pervading software it's not completely taking over the entirety of a pipeline, especially in the vision space. And so what you see is you'll have some classical algorithms mixed with neural networks. And, and, and you might even go back and forth between these kinds of algorithms. And so the coordination of these different algorithms and where they get executed became extremely difficult. And you have different coding styles for, for CPU versus a vector DSP versus a GPU. And all of that, the synchronization, the complexity of the programming models, the complexity of the tools, tool chains, just made it very difficult to get something off the ground quickly. And the realization specifically was that you would like to do all of this in one place if possible. And when we started building that, and started looking at all these algorithms and how you would map them to certain ISAs and, and uh, even offload engines, you couldn't really find a, an architecture out there that had all the properties that you're looking for. Um, most of them are very limited in both compute and operand bandwidth. And a lot of them, especially the vector machines, are have more bandwidth, but they're still limited when you look at the kinds of compute that's going on in AI, whereas a vector machine is 1D, fundamentally, matrix is 2D or even 3D. And so what you really want is a new architecture, a new ISA to be able to support that, as well as the other kinds of compute you're doing. And so that's the fundamental reason for building our own architecture with its own ISA, rather than trying to put, the, put something together um, using existing components. I will mention that there have been other companies that have tried similar things, for example, with RISC-V, kind of uh, arraying a bunch of RISC-V cores. And there are challenges even with that. You end up um, putting a lot of custom instructions into it, and, and you still have the challenge of how do you coordinate between all these different cores, et cetera. Um, so we wanted one core that could run the entire workload all of the ML inference and common pre and post processing, things like scaling, crop, cropping, resizing, um, all in one power efficient machine without having to shuffle data around between different subsystems. Right, well, that makes sense. So let's talk about programmability. Uh, how important do you think full programmability will be for running machine learning workloads? I think it's becoming more and more important. Um, two main reasons. First is that, you know, you look at modern neural networks, convolution is kind of the fundamental building block. But even with the convolution, there's, there's almost endless variety there. Um, you, you know, you have 
uh, a three by three and a one by one convolution, which were some of, uh, you know, based or, or made up the basis for many of the early benchmarks, things like uh, ResNet and, and MobileNet, for example. Um, but more sophisticated models are making more and more use of larger convolutions, five by five, seven by seven, et cetera. And, and then you come to things like transformers, you even get into things like 32 by 32 convolutions. Then you add other things like dilation, striding, padding, and you end up with a wide variety of convolutions. And so even if you're just building a convolutional accelerator, you still have to have a good amount of programmability to deal with all of these kinds of different flavors of convolutions. And, and so you're not building a hardwired accelerator for that. If you go into to more complicated networks, you're talking about you know, more than just eight operators um, that are in say a ResNet. And that's just convolution. If you look at the entirety of the operator space, there's something like 1800 or more than 1800 found in, in um, the various ML frameworks. And so it's not just the eight operators in ResNet, you have a whole lot more plus all the flavors that you have to deal with. And, and then there's a second reason for programmability and, and needing it. Um, when you look at the other operations that are in these networks, you either support them or you fall back to something else like a CPU or a vector DSP. And these are operations like concatenations or slicing, uh, various kinds of activations that you have to do on, on after the, the Mac portion of the compute. And so if you don't support those and you fall back, you're necessarily giving up on power efficiency because you're passing the data back and forth between multiple cores. And so other people recognize that problem too, but they, um, they, they try to build various blocks around their NPUs to handle this. But then as you get newer and newer networks in there, they, they just can't keep up with, with the variety of different kinds of activations, with the variety of different kinds of shape transformation operations, et cetera. And so um, you end up having to fall back to something that is poor performance like a CPU. And then you, you give up a lot in both performance and efficiency as a result of doing that. Right. So how much change in, or how many different operators are we actually seeing in these types of networks that people want to run in embedded systems? Well, um, you know, if you start out by looking at the common ones, you don't see too many different operators. And by common, I mean the various flavors of ResNet or um, MobileNet and, and those kinds of things, even some of the, the more complicated ones from that era, uh, things like Inception or VGG, et cetera, et cetera. However, as we come forward, what we see are more and more interesting things. Yes, convolutions are still at the heart of them, but there are more interesting operations done around them. Um, take, for example, any of the YOLO class, object detection, semantic segmentation, where you have to do a lot of uh, other kinds of operations beyond the convolution to be able to get your bounding boxes and figure out which bounding boxes are meaningful versus not. And so um, 
there are a lot of, of other operators that come into the picture as we move forward and people realize that convolutions are not the, uh, by, you know, the, the uh, end all and be all of neural networks. Right. So if networks are going to change rapidly and with uncertain building blocks, you know, doesn't that mean that Quadric needs to provide some fairly comprehensive software tooling to help people port new ML networks and operators and DSP code over to your architecture? I guess what I'm asking is, does Quadric support customers with compiler technology and a software stack to make all this happen? Great question, and the answer is a resounding yes. Uh, at the, I always tell people you can't build a new architecture without having the software stack. It's it's a meaningless endeavor. And if you look at the area of investments that we've made internally, the compiler and software teams are actually bigger than the hardware teams. The compiler is actually two different compilers. So the first is our uh, Chimera Graph compiler, and that takes in ML graphs. Currently in Onyx format, we will be extending to to other frameworks. Um, and it does a lot of different kinds of graph transformations, analysis, et cetera, and outputs the full network in C++ format. That C++ then becomes an input to our LLVM-based C++ compiler. And paired with that, we have a whole library of uh, APIs that can be used to write either custom operators or filtering algorithms or any other kind of code, you can easily combine that with the C++ that's been generated by the graph compiler and compile down into a single executable binary. I understand from other companies that I've talked to that the graph compilation step is often the Achilles heel of other MPUs because of the sheer number of graph operators. How well do you think your graph compiler stacks up against to uh, other products or, you know, stacks up against that challenge? Great question. Um, you know, as we were discussing before, operators are one part of it and supporting, you can't just say you support one operator unless you really say uh, and explain the different flavors of that operator that you're, um, that you're supporting because Almost no NPU out there supports every flavor of every op. And so um, there's, there's a lot of analysis that we do on the graph at the front end to say, okay, first of all, are there, are, are there any ops in here that are unsupported? If there are, we have a flow that automatically can create a custom operator stub that the user can then go and write their uh, write an implementation for that operator if we do not natively support it for some for some reason, and I would say that's that's a, a less common thing, but it gives people the safety that they can they can go and do it without having to get us involved for every last little bit of it. Beyond that. We take the ops, we understand for anything that we've natively, we natively support, if there are different implementations, what is the best implementation to use in a given situation? For example, for a strided convolution, there's, if you do it naively, there's a lot of computation you would be doing that it goes to waste. You'll never use those outputs. 
And so you want to be able to use a more optimized implementation. If you made that as a local decision, you would always pick the more optimized one. But there, there are other ops that may be ahead of it, uh, uh, behind this op, and you might have to do data transformations of some sort to rearrange the data to get it into a format usable for this optimized implementation. And so what we're doing is we're understanding the cost of not only the, the compute involved in the operator itself, but any data transformations that might have to happen to get it into a certain um, data format to be able to execute a given implementation. We understand that all automatically, and then we're making the best choice for the, given the context around an operator so that we are not only picking the right optimal implementation, but minimizing the amount of data transfer that goes into all of the operators. And so that, that's gonna help not only with latency, but also power. Data movement is, is fundamentally power in most, of, in, in most uh, uh, current state-of-the-art technologies. You're just uh, wiggling bits for no good reason. So the more you can minimize that, the better it is. So that's, that's what our graph compiler is capable of doing. It does it today. It does both uh, optimization as well as all of the uh, custom ops stub generation, as well as all of the other kinds of ops, the shape transformation ops that you see uh, in many of these networks, all automatically uh, for a lot of these uh, shape transformation ops, it's understanding the best way to access data as opposed to just blindly uh, creating memory accesses via uh, memory addresses. It's instead trying to understand, can I flow the data in for this architecture in a specific way so that we get the, the data in uh, without having to do any fancy uh, memory accesses or data transformation uh, once we've gotten it into the array of cores. So there's a lot of things that the graph compiler is doing, uh, not only in terms of support of the operators, but also in optimization of the implementation overall. Um, and I think given that we also have the backup of the custom operator support, which is fairly automatically done, uh, we, can, we come out ahead of other graph compilers because we're clearly telling you what we support and don't support natively, uh, giving you the option, even if we do support something, to uh, be able to write your own implementation if for some reason you think you have a better implementation. All of that comes in, um, it's, it's standard C++, and so you can hook in all of that very easily. And so I think as a result of all of that, um, we, can kind of, we do come out ahead uh, in terms of this graph compilation step. Oh, interesting. So what vertical markets are you targeting uh, with this technology? Great question. We're starting off uh, focusing on purely vision applications at this point, uh, just being a small company, a startup, uh, we have to focus in one area and, and make sure we do that really well. Uh, that being said, the architecture itself can run many different kinds of networks, NLP, generative AI, um, via transformer networks, et cetera. So um, just because we're not targeting a certain area doesn't mean that we don't support that. Right. Hey, one final question, Nigel. How do customers generally engage with Quadric? So typical uh, model as of today, uh, meaning 
sales, we have our salespeople, uh, business development people reaching out to various customers or handling any incoming requests. However, in a few weeks, we will be launching a web-based uh, solution where you can actually try out our software solution and IP uh, on the web. And uh, it's actually pretty, pretty cool stuff. Uh, you can build an entire vision pipeline on the web, uh, import your uh, or upload your Onyx uh, neural network, have that be part of the pipeline, pull in other kinds of algorithms. If you have to do some scaling or cropping or resizing, whatever pre-processing you might have to do before you go to, into the neural network, we have a lot of those available. You can just drag and drop them. And so you could, you're, you're able to test really the entire flow on the web uh, and understand whether this is something that works for you, hopefully it is. Uh, and, and then once you've kind of evaluated that as a first go, and perhaps you might need some, some, some more support or you're just more interested in, in understanding PPA, power performance area, um, then you know come in uh, and say, hey, we're interested, uh, let's talk. And the website is quadric.io. Quadric.io, that's right. Thank you, Nigel. Great discussion. It's a pleasure meeting you, and I look forward to following uh, you guys on your journey and hopefully having you back for an update uh, later on this year. Likewise, would love to do so, and uh, thanks for having me. That concludes our podcast. Thank you all for listening, and have a great day.